hey popcorn junkies, hey box set bingers, streamers, Netflix nutters. This is our Jeffrey Dahmer uh, review for episodes uh, two, three and four. Haven't watched all of them, we're watching them in clutches. It's, it, bloody hell, you can't dine out on this in one big fest. Though I have to confess, I have to confess, uh, quite a few people have. Quite a few people have just gone and watched this back to back. I don't know how. I don't know. How, I don't know how you could do it. Just it's, oh, it's it's literally it's it's like gorging without without any sort of pun intended on just the richest or most awful diet of kind of excess and and awful, just awfulness. And now this is the series by Ryan Murphy, written by Ryan Murphy, directed by a host of different people, uh, including Jennifer Lynch directed one of the episodes that we're reviewing. Uh, I think episode four, uh, Jennifer, is it Jennifer? Lynch? Yeah, Jennifer Lynch being um, David Lynch's daughter. Um, and so, yeah, we did episode one. I thought episode one was in a really, um, really successful, really tight really uh, thought thoughtful, stressful and incredibly nuanced, almost standalone film, uh, which was a top draw lesson in tension building uh, and sort of claustrophobia and the psychopathy of a, of a, of a, of a, of a serial killer, uh, coupled with the surviving instinct or survival instinct of a potential victim. It's absolutely sensational. Uh, and I talked a lot in that review about the idea that Ryan Murphy, uh, who was responsible for American Horror Story, Nurse Ratchet, the series Ratchet, um, he's done a host of other stuff too. He's, done, he's I think he's a producer on the crime series, the O.J. Simpson one and uh, the, the, the Versace one. Um, but this one is quite he's quite fingers into this. And my worry and uh, or my fear was that this whole series was going to become a Ryan Murphy fest. It tends to end up becoming quite a sort of camp, almost exploitative kind of, I don't know, sort of romp. I mean, as if you could use that phrase, but he, does, he sort of manages to turn sort of really awful things into sort of quite lighthearted, rompy sort of stuff. And I thought, well, he can't do that with this. He can't do that with this. And episode one, I very much felt he didn't. However, and this is a big however uh get to episode two uh, and we are gonna we, we sort of you know this this the structure is is kind of curious it doesn't just go i thought we were gonna go right back to the beginning and then we were gonna just move uh, you know chronologically through his life but we kind of go we do go back to the beginning we go, do go and meet the younger uh, jeffrey dharma but uh we also jump forward in time to uh, another murder and we jump back in time and we jump forward in time so it's quite staggered and it sort of spurts in different directions in terms of the timeline where we're at in the timeline and what have you um, so in episode two, we get a second attack or second sort of victim, which is the 14 year old boy he pulls in front of the liquor store. And this boy, uh, he lures, lures back like he did with the final victim, with uh, you know, uh, do photos for money and all that kind of stuff. Um, and whilst in there, he kind of essentially drugs this guy or gets this guy drunk and then drills a hole in his head, pours water and acid into his head. I mean, yeah, God almighty. I mean, apparently he did this to kind of almost zombify his victims. Horrendous. Um, but even this boy managed to partially or almost escape. One thing Jeffrey Dahmer didn't ever seem to think through was uh, his front door, the lock to his door. And there's a weird detail in there because when you start to unpack some of the narrative events in, the, in these three episodes or the what happened in his life you think well that can't have happened but of course it did happen like that because this is telling as true a story as possible obviously it's, it's embellishing what was said and all that kind of stuff but he managed to so anyway so this victim 14 year old boy manages to escape but the and but they and and the neighbors find the boy on the street the police come and he could be they, you know Jeffrey Dahmer could have been rumbled at this early early stage but he manages to get away with saying he's my boyfriend he's older than he looks uh, and despite the protestations of his black neighbors and this is what i do think is kind of culturally interesting is uh, Jeffrey Dahmer clearly managed to get away with a lot of what he did 
based upon exploiting or taking advantage of the latent racism within the local police force in Milwaukee. So the police ignore his neighbours and he drags him back in and, and so on and so forth. You have you have another death. Then we do cut back to Jeffrey Dahmer the boy. And we do, Jeffrey Dahmer the boy is a cutie. I'm sorry, he's a cutie. He's got glasses. He's, he's, a, he's a cutie. And it, it's that terrible dilemma in the telling of any story of a monster. At what point is the monster responsible for their monstrosities? And at what point are they merely, you know, being created? They're a consequence of their environment. They are, you know, they're, they're an innocent bystander, an innocent victim of, 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 of things happening to them or not happening to them. And so we're introduced to the young Dharma who, you know, has got the big spectacles on and what have you. You know, he takes big tadpoles up to his teacher in class. You know, they were, anyone else think, where, where do you get tadpoles that big? They were giant. Anyway, he gives them to the teacher, whereas other students are giving her apples, you know, teacher's pet. He gives her tadpoles. She finds her a bit odd. She gives them to other kids in the class. And he realises that people can't be trusted. We get a distinct sense that, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, the boy, was not only let down by kids and uh, let down by teachers, but he was obviously let down by his suicidal pill-popping mother. Whew, yeah, she was, she was something. His workaholic, love-avoidant father, forever just leaving through the door, getting out of there, wanting to escape his, his mad wife and, and just ignoring his children. But who was, incidentally, the father was, incidentally, responsible for introducing Dharma to the idea of roadkill and raccoons and chopping things up and going into the garage and looking at their entrails and pulling them out and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes I watch these things and I think to myself, thank God I didn't have a dad. I really do, because, you know, on the one hand, you always think, oh, I wish I knew my dad. But then on others, you think, God, he could have been such an ass. Um, but anyway, we will discover this. this obviously, this pulling of entrails and all this kind of stuff. And these are flashbacks to Jeffrey Dahmer's childhood that happen over the next two or three episodes. And I, I presume happen for the rest of the series. Connections, you know, wish it's, it sort of swims back and it swims forward. It swims back and it swims forward. We get a sense of him heading into the army. We see him staying with his nan. His nan's all right. She's that kind of classic generation where everything is just Jeff is Jeffrey, you know. Know, lovely Jeffrey but there's this really weird moment in episode one where he steals a mannequin now the whole mannequin thing incidentally was Molly Ringwald in the film Mannequin or am I imagining that? Um, mannequin, a mannequin. He steals a mannequin from a shop. Obviously homoerotic. He wants to stroke the body. It's a perfect body. But most interestingly of all with the mannequin, it comes in bits, doesn't it? You can disattach bits. You can take bits apart. And you begin to start to think that clearly Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, at an early stage, had it programmed into him, this idea that the body, a little bit like an action figure, is merely a sort of... A sort of skeletal construct to just kind of it's, it's, it's an articulated kind of form like an action figure and those parts can be pulled off and it doesn't really matter that those parts as a whole create a human being he just likes the bits he's interested in the body parts and so he he snaffles away this mannequin there's one particular scene where he he's got these yellow it's in the poster the yellow um contact lenses and i didn't realize it kind of put me off return of the jedi he was a huge fan of return of the jedi and of course these eye these uh these contact lenses were his uh, sort of riff on the eyes of the emperor emperor palpatine uh, which is a bit oh god those contact lenses are a bit freaky a bit horrible um and so you know episode one really started to introduce us to this dysfunction the dysfunctionality of his idea of what people are what bodies are and 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 you get a sense already of his relationship with his parents or his lack of his of relationship with his parents and the way in which you know so many of these things so much so much bad behavior or, or traumatic behavior 
can can contort into terrible, terrible actions. I mean, thank God. I mean, so many people experience trauma as children. And thank God the vast majority of them don't go this way. I mean, what is it? Well, you know, that's when you start to ask questions about, is there such a thing as evil? It, 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 if you've got this heady mix of ingredients, which is trauma, you know, the lack of nurture, abandonment, uh, you know, abuse, whatever. But then you need that added ingredient of evil actually thrown in there for it to actually sort of, you know, for like a chemical explosion to sort of erupt into this awfulness. Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer episode three, we get more background. His mum is is going more and more sort of crazy. She thinks she's being abducted by UFOs, seeing UFOs. She has fights with her husband. There's, you know, they pull knives out, all this kind of stuff. There's a scene where Jeffrey Dahmer is, not now it's not just roadkill, but he goes fishing with his dad and he cuts open the sort of body of a fish and we get the entrails. And out of the entrails, he, he actually finds the entrails of a fish more sexually arousing than a porn mac. You know, something's up here. I mean, I think it's in the next episode when he's in the army. I think, well, there's a prison psychologist or someone says to him, maybe it's around when he's caught masturbating. Uh, someone says to him, you know, that, that apparently, you know, it's a thing, shiny and an attraction to wet, shiny surfaces. Oh, I mean, really? Could that be why wet, wet t-shirt? Oh, all that kind of stuff. Um, we, we cut back to when he was at school. He take, he, well, he's the kid at school. Well, he's the kid at school. He's a kid at school who asks to take a pig Body, a pig's body home to dissect. I mean, that talk about talk about it being enthusiastic. I think the teacher even says, "God, I've, I've never had anyone ask for that." Um, he would impersonate disabilities in class. So uh, this episode's called "Doing a Dharma." I think it's the idea that you know you, you, he could impersonate. You know, he would he would see no harm in impersonating people with disabilities. His parents' divorce. Terrible moment where Jeffrey Dharma is left by his mum classic kind of you could say cod psychology and when you see each moment in his life story develop you think ah not that obvious old trope i mean so many aspects of this story if you if a writer came to you with it written in script form you go no that's too obvious or no that you know there are many moments where for example he could have easily we'll talk about pick be picked up by the police and you're like oh come on that's too he would have, wouldn't have got away with that but he did and i think that all that all feeds into his sense of never feeling he could be caught but anyway his sense of abandonment his sense of isolation his parents divorce his dad's still an avoidant his mum's buggering off with his brother and so he's kind of essentially left on his home on his own and he starts drinking a lot he starts doing bodybuilding god almighty sounds like me when i was younger honing his body there are a couple of scenes where he's got driving past a jogger and he runs out with a baseball bat and he goes to hit him but i thought god that was a bit bizarre that he didn't actually hit him and then he does pick, he does pick up a hitchhiker but a hitchhiker who's kind of going to a local festival and it kind of again that he you know it's threaded into this and it doesn't surprise me that this is threaded into it given ryan murphy's involvement is the idea of sublimated, you know, homosexuality. This was a time when you couldn't come out. This was a time when it had to be driven underground. I don't think Ryan Murphy's suggesting that part of his, part of the drive for his sort of psychopathy was his inability to be openly gay or the fact that he perhaps struggled himself with the idea of being gay. Though perhaps, perhaps that was part of the Jeffrey Dahmer sort of, maybe that's what how he internalised his own, all his own issues. Um, he ends up killing this poor hitchhiker this hippie hitchhiker who isn't gay uh, because he tries to snog him and kiss him and he hits him with a dumbbell and you often wonder ah oh, when a dumbbell it's the blunt instrument and you just think again my my heart at this point was going out to again this must be a very challenging thing to watch for families of the victims at least of all again i mean ryan murphy treads a you know the tonally this is treading a very fine line and I, I did feel that the last episode and this episode these within these last two episodes episode four less so i felt episodes two and three in the series 
we were getting more of that kind of Ryan Murphy sort of exploitative, let's be a bit sort of arched and funny and let's find a joke in this and let's find a sort of dark sense of humour. I don't necessarily know if there's a dark sense of humour. I think uh, all the way through it, Evan Peters is playing Jeffrey Dahmer so straight. And I think this is at its strongest when it slows down the scenes and we have moments of interiority or, you know, you have close-ups of, of, of Evan Peters' face or you have him struggling with his sobriety or trying to be coherent or make sense of what's going on. You know, um, you know, there's a whole scene of him burning and cooking the bones and to dispose of the hitchhiker's body. Uh, there was a moment where he's pulled by the police and he's got the but he's got the bits of the, the hitchhiker in bags in the car. And that's one of those moments where you go, no, this couldn't have happened. The police were, he was drinking and he's got dead bits in a bag in a car. Come on. Okay, it is, this is unbelievable. But it's how it happened. And then I think in a way, uh, the fact that he got away with that and the fact that he so nearly got caught so many times doing things led him to feel that he was uncatchable. Do you see what I mean? It kind of gave him a sort of sense of invincibility uh, and, and, and luck, in a sense, was on his side. And yet there was an also there was also an aspect to this, especially at the end of episode three, where he kind of, you know, he literally cooks the bones, smashes the bones, and then he sort of throws the ashes in the air, a sort of pseudo-religious spiritual aspect to it. And apparently in interviews, uh, once he was caught, that he was talking about the idea that at some points he was thinking of creating a temple uh, of some form or an altarpiece out of the bones and body parts of many of his victims. So there was clearly, and if you think about his obsession with the exorcist and the emperor and Return of the Jedi, I'm sure he's probably obsessed with the omen too. Um, the actors are great. Richard Jenkins is fantastic as his father. Sometimes a little bit. I, the mo mo mother's very good, but I don't know. I, I found her a bit one note. I didn't. Quite, I wasn't. She really wasn't convincing me of her psycho her, her psychology or her mental health sort of vulnerabilities or or her irrationality or anything like that. Richard, Richard Jenkins being a love avoidance, quite an easy part to play because you're constantly dashing and getting away from things. Um, putting pressure on his somebody, but really the star of the piece here is Evan Peters, who's just at the centre of this is just this sort of swirl. It, I don't know if anyone else gets this. At times, it feels like he feels like he's Andy Warhol. It's like Jeffrey Dahmer was Andy Warhol with a knife and a, an axe uh, and a drill because there's nothing going on in the face and yet there's so much going on in the face. And that's what Evan Peters is so good at. He's so good at the ability to give you the sense of something and nothing, of emptiness and fullness, of a disconnection uh, and, a, and a total connection. And of course he wants connection with his victims. He, he, wants, connect, he wants to be connected. He wants people near him. He misses mum. He misses his family. He wants love. And his only way of getting love is by dismembering people and making sure that he holds them close to him. Like a collector, a bit like John Fowles' book, The Collector. He's going to collect these bits and keep them close to him. If you remember in episode one, they talk about how they found all these bits kind of stored, complete skeletons in, in a drawer and skulls in a place and what have you and all that kind of stuff. Episode four of Jeffrey Dahmer, um, and of course you've got the remarkable details, really nice details, I thought, in the school of him, kind of, you know, photo bombing, uh, class photos, you know, um, you know, those photos that you get in America with the whole class, and, you know, he, he was in the back of the photo, and they even airbrush him out, or they create a silhouette. We get in episode four, we get a sense of him joining the army, and again, you get these narrative developments where you think, well, that's a bit bloody obvious. Well, he went into the, he went into the army, he was unemployable, He's, he was a complete sort of, you know, hopeless at school, didn't get any of his grades, but you can go into the army, become a medical specialist, learn how to drug people, for God's sake, which is what he did. Then, 
I mean, again, look at it on the page of the script. He goes to a butcher's. Was it a Polish butcher's? Goes to a butcher's. What? So you can push sausages through machines and meat through sausage making machines? This is ludicrous. This is the this is the perfect job for a cannibal serial killer. Of course it is. But he's caught masturbating at a school fair. And of course he gets sort of, he gets done for that. That's where he finds out, I think, from the prison psychologist that he has a sexual obsession with glistening, glossy entrails and offal. Apparently it's a thing. Didn't realise that. Loses that job. But then he gets a job in a, he gets a fucking job in a laboratory where he's dealing, he's processing, taking blood from from people. And there's the most chilling scene. I thought it was a very powerful and horrendous scene that really makes you, the, the, the consistency of the blood that he takes home four or five packs of blood plasma and he just stands and he just drinks it. And it's like, you sit there thinking, was he, was he, was he a vampire? Was, it, was there vampiricism going on here? What the hell? What is going on? What is going comfort? Is it about comfort eating? But is this comfort eating at the most ludicrous end of the spectrum? I don't know. Um, so yeah, he goes there. Then we see his dad. His dad comes back. It's all very unclear how he's living on his own, where he's living on his own, whether he, what, you know, who. His mum's gone. His mum's out of the scene. His dad comes back with his new girlfriend, with Molly Ringwald. Fucking hell, pretty in pink. Hey, Molly Ringwald. Is that is that Molly Ringwald uh, playing Richard Jenkins' girlfriend and potentially his stepmom? Uh, and then we move through. He kind of gets close to revealing just a bit too much to his dad and his dad's new girlfriend about his sexual appetite. Uh, and uh, you can see his dad gets a bit, oh, this is a bit scary. Um, we're going to pay for you. We're going to pay for you to do to, Don't worry. We're going to look after you. We're going to sort you out. <laughs> and he pays for him to go to college. But of course, he gets thrown out of college. And so that, that completely falls apart. Everything, everything that's thrown at him just falls apart. Um, alcoholism. You know, he, clearly he's, he's drinking more and drinking more. That numbing effect, that sort of slow erosion of his kind of his coherence and, 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 you know, he makes more and more, well, I mean, to be honest with you, from the very beginning, he was making sloppy mistakes from the very beginning. This was not a serial, what I'm surprised by is Jeffrey Dahmer was not a serial killer who was meticulously, had his eye on the detail to make sure he wasn't caught. He was sloppy, he was mistake laden, and he was often drunk and high and off his tits. Uh, he starts taking, meeting potential lovers and taking them to um, bath houses, to you know, these sort of massage places where they could have sex and take drugs. And uh, it goes a bit wrong there. And someone, I think someone, I, I, I was distracted at one point, I think someone died in one of the bath houses. Um, and then so he's, he's not allowed to go there, the sort of massage houses where all the kind of guys go to have sex. He's not allowed in there. And then he has to go to a really sort of high class hotel. And he goes to a high class hotel and he takes another victim up to this posh hotel and this is where he's so sloppy I thought, now this for me was evan peter's best moment since episode one was where he accidentally drugs himself <laughs> i mean my god he accidentally gives himself the wrong drink and how evan peters played that the agonizing because what is clever about his performance is you're not root obviously you're not rooting for him to achieve what he's going to achieve but this is where these kind of films get very dangerous and this is what i think ryan murphy is fully across and fully aware of when you commit to something like this, there's a terrible transactional relationship between the viewer and a drama like this, which is, I'm sitting here, I'm giving you my time, and I'm giving you my Netflix subscription for you to offend me. And I want to be offended, and I want to see what I've come here to see. And what have we come here to see? We've come to see, presumably across a 10-episode series, death and murder. Um, and I think that's a really difficult rubric to kind of deal with, because... You know, on the one hand, you're, as a viewer, going, this is terrible, this is awful, I'm not sanctioning this. And then another part of you, through great performances, through all of the drama, you know, the music, the, the narrative, the setup, you're going, okay, 
<clears throat> okay, and what? And okay, you could argue, well, it's happened and we're trying. But I think I think there's a bit of a slate of hand. I think there's a bit of dishonesty going on here. This isn't for the greater good of the world. This is for straight up lurid entertainment. Uh, and you have to kind of morally just go, all right, well, I'm sitting with this. And that's what happens in this scene. So you're not you're not rooting for him, but you are rooting for him. You're rooting, you're sitting, you're thinking, fucking hell, he's going, Evan Peters. Well, what's he done? He's drugged himself. And so you're in this curious place where you're kind of going, no, no, no. And then, of course, he manages, he wakes up and... Boy, talk about rock bottom. When he wakes up, when he comes around in the hotel room and there's just the a brilliant shot. It was just a brilliant scene of him losing control, trying to maintain control, trying to regain control, ferociously getting sort of almost sobering himself up so that he could actually kill this guy or drug this guy. And then the following morning we wake up and there's a very slow camera, really nice sort of crabbing uh, back camera reveal of a scene of total devastation. And, and which incidentally in, and interestingly, because of his alcohol intake, Yes, Dormer has, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's killed someone, but he can't even remember the joy of killing him and he can't remember the connection that he may have made with him. You know, he, even if there's a thrill to the kill, he, he's lost it due to, his, due to his drinking. So he wakes up to a hell of a mess. Sadly, this, this victim is put into a suitcase um, and later in the film, you have this most sort of, <clears throat> I'd have thought, almost emblematic, iconic moment where obviously he dismembers the body he puts bits here, there and everywhere. He takes them to his nan's house, takes them into the basement. And he has this head, the head of the victim, and he kisses the head of the victim. I think this is the episode directed by Jennifer Lynch, uh, David Lynch's daughter. But interestingly, the head, I think, goes into a box of family keepsake photos of his father, thus bonding and fusing that real idea or that connection between his feelings of loss and love towards his family and his obviously incredibly contorted sense of trying to find love through loss in his killing sprees and, and, and these contorted, contorted relationships. I mean, for him and his screwed up serial killer head, he's striking a relationship with these body parts like he did with the mannequin. Just because they're body parts to his head. These are bits of the same thing. If I keep the bits then they're close to me and they won't leave me like mummy did. For more film and family fun, don't forget to click the subscribe button and make sure to click the bell to never miss an update.